Today, we are joined by Judy Kala, Palestinian-British chef and food writer. She's the author of two prize-winning books, Palestine on a Plate, Memories from My Mother's Kitchen, and Beledi, A Celebration of Food from Land and Sea. Cooking kind of keeps me going, and my mom, this is what she used to stabilize herself, being away from her family, and she passed it on to me. I think we're really spoiled as Arabs because I remember going to friends' houses and have dinner there, and it's one dish, and that's it. And I'm thinking like the rest is coming out next. Nothing ever came out. It was- Have you ever thought about doing Palestinian food fusion? Oh, Lara, no. <laughs> Nobody sees the makluba and is like, hey, was it smoked with apple wood? Anybody who keeps categorized bone in their <laughs> fridge, like that's either a delicious chef or a serial killer. <laughs> I heard a Zionist say that he was actually indigenous to hummus. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Laura E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you claimed Mansov as a taste of Israel, even though it's not kosher and it's not yours. When asked if it constitutes stealing Palestinian cuisine, a Zionist named Yakub said, hey, if we don't steal it, someone else will. Did you say that about Mansov too? No, that's a little joke. I just oh, I'm like, wait, what? He actually said that about Metsov? Okay, fine. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. We also have a lot of exciting stuff happening over on Patreon. So if you love the Palestine Pod and you want to support this project, join our Patreon where you can have early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest creation that we call the Patreon Pod. A little more laid back, a little more Palestine content, a little more personal stories and monthly Zoom happy hours with Michael and myself. So really exciting stuff. You can find us over at patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. Today, we are joined by Judy Kala, a Palestinian-British chef and food writer. She's the author of two prize-winning books, Palestine on a Plate, Memories from My Mother's Kitchen, which was published in 2016, and Beledi, A Celebration of Food from Land and Sea, which was published in 2018. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera, amongst other venues. Judy, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it, Judy. You're a dear friend of mine, a sister, really. And I've listened to basically like as many interviews as I can find of yours on the internet. And I noticed that so many of them focus on the work that you have put out. Obviously, Palestine on a Plate, a best-selling cookbook, one of my favorite cookbooks to cook from. And I think this is the new cover not the original cover. The cover of this was uh, created by a really amazing uh, guy called Jawad Hijazi in, in Jordan. And it's an abstract image of the tiles from Al-Aqsa Mosque. So I was allowed to have a bit of free reign on the reprint of it. And uh, he did it beautifully. So I wanted something a little bit different than the original front cover, which was a picture of Fatah Hummus, I think, and some bread. So it's yeah. a special one. And then this is, of course, Baladi, which is gorgeous and pops right out at you. I love cooking from these books, but we'll get into that in a little bit. I really wanted to use this interview as a space to get to know Judy Kala, like really like try to get to know you on a deeper level and hopefully benefit from the fact that we do have a relationship, a personal relationship, and that it's always a lot of fun to interview a friend to to hopefully make that, that come out. So maybe we can just start by your story as a Palestinian. Where's your family from in Palestine? How did they get to the UK? I know that your family became refugees and went through Syria, but just give our listeners a little bit of that 
Kala family history. So we know where your cooking is inspired from. My mom is from Elid and uh, Yafa and my father is from Safad. I, up until very recently, I just told you, thought um, from stories, you know, stories get mixed up. People say things and you pick up things and imagine that's the reality. I thought my parents were born in Syria because they were born in the same year and my grandparents met going to Syria. But it actually turns out that my parents were born in Palestine and their mothers met. And that was the only difference, that they were actually born in Palestine, which made it even nicer for me. And then they went to Syria and they lived in the same building. And this is how my parents met with their 11 brothers and sisters and nine brothers and sisters. And they were refugees there and their parents or mothers had to start all over again. And, you know, the story for seven, eight hundred thousand Palestinians. But from there, we grew up there, went to Qatar and then moved to the UK. And we'd go back to Syria every year to visit my grandmother. And it was always a lot of people. <laughs> you know, Each sister, you know, auntie rather had five, six kids plus us. We were five. It wasn't an exception. And we had a really lovely you know, unity, lots of food, lots of aunties, lots of cooking. And it was a nice atmosphere and really didn't think much of it until my grandmother passed away and we stopped going. And then we kind of were a bit separated from everybody. And you get older and you start to learn a little bit more about who you are, where you come from. And that's where all the interesting stuff happened and ended up in those two books that you've got there. Minus a lot of things. Obviously, nobody wants to read like gory details and sad shit. But, you know, I had to keep it kind of celebratory because we want to, we, I wanted to show a different side of Palestinians rather than what's always on the news, which is a very big reality. But there's also a very beautiful side to it as well that doesn't need to constantly be overshadowed with occupation and terror and, you know all the lovely stuff you talk about in your podcasts. So <laughs> I'm happy I did it that way. I started off like a bloodbath book with so much information and it just was depressing to read. And I thought no one's going to want to know this. Yeah. Cooking, cooking is, is, is what kind of keeps me going. And my mom, this is what she used to stabilize herself being away from her family and having her kids and, and she passed it on to me because I needed it a lot to ground myself. What year were your parents born? For, oh, Lara. Because <laughs> no, I'm wondering if they were born, they were born pre-Nekba or post-Nekba. You never ask a lady's age. I didn't ask yeah. her age. I know her age. I'm asking her parents' age. <laughs> you asked for her mother's age. <laughs> my mom is, is that so- 45, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she's please. 45. Okay. Yeah. She survived the neck, but she's 45. <laughs> my mom's been 30 for about 17 years. <laughs> so they older than my mom right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pre Nakba. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they, they, their childhoods were the ones that were like vi- violently interrupted by the Nakba. So they got to know Syria as they were growing up. And did they grow up in refugee camps in Syria or at at any point? Or did they, were they immediately able to get housing? Immediately able to get housing. My grandparents, my grandfathers both had passed away young and they had secured my grandmothers with money and their businesses and so on. And they used that and they, both got apartments in Syria, so they were not in refugee camps. And again, my parents ended up meeting because they both ended up living in the same apartment building, almost from birth, but not, you know, very, very young. But yeah, so they did not experience that, but they experienced the life of a refugee in another country, even though Syria is very, very similar and close to Palestine. It's not the same. It's not home, but it became home. And Syria is amazing. I mean, it's sad what's happened to Syria now, but we loved being there. What uh, city were they in? What city did they grow up in? Damascus. What a beautiful kitchen you have, by the way. Over there. Many My living books room. And jars. Oh, well, just like a general, like, yeah, like food storage. Like, that looks great. <laughs> 
Yeah, I have a lot of stuff. Lara knows. Uh, if you want to, if you want to eat anything, I can cook anything because I have everything. She wow. wanted London. She's like, can we have something spicy like a pho? Or... So I just made like a bone broth and prawns and coriander. I don't know what. And there was everything here. Uh, this is how I live. <laughs> I like to have anything ready at the click of my fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. You totally shocked me that day because I was like, let's order <laughs> And you were like, what are you talking about? As you were pulling out like beef bones, bones from your freezer, you're like, I'll just make the stock immediately. <laughs> and I was like, oh, of course. Why not? Wait, hey, hey, you don't you don't keep beef bones on deck? Just, she had just bones. Uh... She had like categorized bags of different animal bones that she uses for seasoning <laughs> and stocks. And then she just Yo. cut up ginger and turmeric and all these like roots. And, and, and the next thing you know, like there's this huge pot. Like I don't even have a pot this size. Most people do not have a pot this size. It was a very tall pot. It was like filled with all this stuff. And then there's liquid like to the brim. And then a few hours later, she like, it just removes everything that's in the pot and saves only the liquid. And that's our broth. And then she starts putting other stuff in. And I'm just like going nuts. Like who cooks like this? Like I, cause yeah. I've always, I've always been, I've always heard about chefs that they eat trash when they're not like working. Right. Yeah. Hey, anybody who keeps like a categorized bone in their <laughs> fridge, like that's either a delicious chef or a serial killer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm on the verge. <laughs> So yeah, she had a bag of bones labeled in her fridge. I was like, okay, that's when I left the date, actually. <laughs> and I missed, I missed out on some delicious pho, actually, it sounds like. from. Yeah, this is how I like to cook. I'm happy you were there because I make this all the time. Not that, but I cook like this all the time. Yeah, I mean, I've seen your, your videos on Instagram. You'll post a lot of the times like the broths and the soups and the stocks that you make. And it looks gorgeous. And of course, none of it is Palestinian food. People don't realize perhaps like of your following, you know, on Instagram, which is this amazing following that you've amassed, they perhaps don't realize how excellent of a chef Judy Kale is not in Palestinian food. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I, I'm what, I'm, I've been a chef professionally cooking for 25 years. I didn't, I mean, I know, I knew how to cook Palestinian food and, but I trained in French restaurants and Vietnamese and Thai and uh, English. And I learned a lot of amazing things. And this, this is like the backbone of my home cooking for me. Obviously, I love Palestinian food. I would never have written the books that I wrote if I didn't love it. But I, I, this is the stuff I like to do, like uh, just hot, spicy, lots of chilies and flavor. I don't know very different to our style of cooking and yeah aromatic stuff and I, I really got more into it when I got Lyme disease and I had to get really into feeding my body really really good stuff yeah the bone broths is like a monthly thing I order batches of it and in the freezer and I keep keep whipping them up all the time because it's so good for you what's your favorite family meal that you ever had while working at a restaurant Family meal. Mm. Oh my gosh. Probably an assortment of uh, everything I just said. I worked in this French fusion Asian restaurant. I think it's just a combination of everything, noodles and spicy and chili calamari and lots of sesame seeds and prawns. I think a mixture of things. I don't like to eat. I think we're really spoiled as Arabs because I remember going to friends' houses and have dinner there and it's one dish and that's it. And I'm thinking like the rest is coming out next. Nothing ever came out. It was just that. Uh, and um, <laughs> it was very disappointing, but delicious. But I think it's this whole sharing foods, a mixture of things. I, I you know. We're, we're we're lucky that we can't eat like that and have the opportunity because not many people can afford it or it's not natural so I'm very conscious of this but this is probably something Asian and chili spicy soya sauce I have an addiction soya sauce and ketchup if anybody knows me 
this is my illness. I have a cupboard and the fridge full of ketchup and soy sauce. <laughs> have you ever thought about doing Palestinian food fusion with something else? Oh, Lara. Uh, no. <laughs> uh... I, no, because, because people are still discovering Palestinian food, right? And, and, and learning that we have this cuisine. And that, yeah, it's basically the cuisine that Israel stole and is parading around as Israeli food, except we've been there longer and uh, making it for a um, you know, much longer period of time. But it hasn't benefited from the same level of experimentation, I would say. I tell you why, because it doesn't work. Really? Yeah. And I'm not saying that to, to like knock your idea down. It just doesn't work. I mean, I, I tell you something uh, in my books, I've done things that are not Palestinian, but with an inspiration of Palestine as an example, chocolate and labneh cake and the fike fig pistachio cake and the tainer brownies. These are, not uh, fusions, it's just accidents that happened that turned out great. Or I needed to just be a little bit more creative for an event and I thought, why not? And then it worked out good and I thought, ah, this would fit nicely. But I tell you something, these are just three out of 10 that I experimented with. And these three plus the others are the ones that are most commented on by people saying she's inauthentic, she doesn't know what she's doing, this is not traditional, she's changing things. And um, yeah, I am changing things because Taina brownies are delicious. And uh, so is the Frika and fig cake. But is it Palestinian? No, but Frika is from Palestine. The figs were from Palestine in that particular recipe. My auntie gave me some. And it's not about fusion. It's just, I feel... Like you said, I'm a chef before I'm Palestine on a plate or Beledi. And these are what these are things that chefs do. They try things, they work, sometimes they don't. But I felt very judged and penalized for coming out of the box to make delicious stuff. And those work, but not everything does. Majority of things don't. Like if you made Matlube different or fusion, I don't know if it would work, or Mansaf. Um, or it, it's I wouldn't even know where to start. I think some things we have to keep them as they are. And when, when you said they don't work or it hasn't worked for us, what did you mean? As in like people don't know enough about our, our cuisine? Palestinian cuisine has not benefited from the same amount of experimentation in terms of merging it with other cuisines or, you know, elevating it in the sense of, you know, moderni modernizing it. So applying modern cooking techniques, you know, molecular gastronomy yeah. or, you know, melding it with a sort of new British, new American sort of styles. I, I don't think it works. I really don't think it does. I mean, and that's why I don't think so. I know it doesn't. I've tried it and it doesn't work. And I tried it not for me. I tried it for people who asked me and it just didn't, it wasn't right. Nobody sees the Makluba and is like, hey, was it smoked with apple wood? You know what I mean? It's like, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of preserving tradition and, you know, making things as they were made a long time ago, are, I ask this of everybody who does food on the show. Are you pro or anti Bamiye? <laughs> Don't disappoint me. I'm anti Bamiye. Oh my goodness. Bamiye gate part three. <laughs> we have two anti Bamiyas. I The texture of Bamiye makes me feel so unwell the, oblig the obligatory i've got to say you just haven't had it right <laughs> you gotta cook it off first <laughs> i have i have i just oh of course i know but that's just i'm supposed like i have to be the you know the advocate for uh Bamia in this moment since there is nobody else it's a really bum deal here but it, it's very very good it just has this thing i don't know I don't know. Yeah. Hey, Sorry. well, we're just we're just taking a poll, you know what I mean, among all of our food guests. <laughs> yeah. And you're exactly. you're totally entitled to like and dislike what you like. Hey, you're Palestinian. Who am I, you know, to tell you? 
Your taste buds matter too. <laughs> oh, thank you. We were eating unseasoned chicken in caves for years. So yes, Leila Haddad spent a lot of time explaining to us how if the bamia is slimy or hairy, then you have used the wrong type of bamia. That you should be using bamia when it's very young. And hasn't developed that sort of grainy texture. And when it's young, it's apparently completely different. But unfortunately, most people are using the wrong bamia when they end up making bamia. So like there is a good bamia. It's just apparently a lot of people don't know. This is what we were told. And then my dear friend Whitney actually mailed me like across the ocean bamia seeds for me to plant on my balcony. And so I promised her I would do that. I I I I I fully intend on doing that, Whitney, if you're watching. So I wanted to say something else about about the um oh god. About the the fusion food. Don't do it. Well no, I wanted to just say something else. I will I wanted to say something else because the <laughs> You're so funny. I love you. Um, just to love finish it. that conversation. Oh, a lot of our food comes in one pot, right? So it's like how, you know, and, and the thing too with the flavors is that we use a lot of the same spices over and over. The meat mixture, you know, the ground beef mixture ends up in so many different dishes and it's the same one in terms of the spices and the preparation, you know, you're, you're putting it, you're preparing it. You can do a meal prep, prepare that, and then end up eating three or four different things in the week. And so maybe part of the, the answer is because the traditional foods have been so their, their flavor profiles are so ingrained and so, you know, you know what a mensaf is, you know what a matluba is. It can't be any other way. Maybe that's part of the answer for, for the lack of, you know, flexibility. Then also, I just want to say the people who are, you know, insulting your rose lemon donut or your taina brownie and saying, oh, it's not Palestinian. Maybe that's for them. The issue is that it's being framed as Palestinian, but if it weren't being framed as Palestinian, or if it was just framed as Palestinian inspired, Maybe it's the the language that's being used. But in any event, I mean, that's just ridiculous to begin with because chefs are inventors, they're creators. You know, they should have the creative license. Like as a Palestinian, you are in a in in history right now, a living, breathing part of Palestinian cuisine. So if you want to make a taina brownie, then yeah, taina brownie becomes a part of Palestinian history. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you are history as well. So that to me, that's also really uncalled for. But people have a lot of opinions yeah i have to caveat a lot of things if you read the introductions to those particular recipes i'm like i know this is not palestinian but this is every single time because i know somebody's going to be like ah how did she call this banana date cake palestinian it's not it's not but the dates are from palestine and they're medjool dates and i put them in a cake and i think the recipe is delicious i am the type of person lara i think like you uh, Michael, sorry, I don't know you well enough to put you in this, but I'm presuming you're like Lara because birds of a feather flock together. And I'm not of the type to criticize people or like cut them at their knees when they're doing stuff. I like to enjoy what people do. And if I don't agree with it, I just skip to the next page. I don't think it's anyone's right to attack and dismember people's work or their spirit or whatever it might be. And yeah, go eat the Taina brownie. It's delicious. And it's Palestinian. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. The only people that I tear down on the internet are Zionists and they deserve it to the point where they actually gave me my nickname, Mikey Intifada. So oh, really? nice name. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. But I also think, I mean, think about like the first person who made mensaf or the first person who made him sechan. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't Palestinian at that point. It was just some person in Palestine saying this chicken tastes really good when you do it this way. And then it became part of, it became our national dish. It became the heart and soul of Palestinian cuisine. Im so 
for me, the idea that you have to abide by some sort of really strict boundaries that somebody else sets when cooking Palestinian cuisine, I think that is all contrived. You are a Palestinian. So anything you cook, if you're using the flavors and ingredients and inspiration of the land can become a part of the Palestinian story. If enough people start to make it right. And then everybody has this collective, you know, awakening that, oh yeah, we make tahina brownies. They're amazing. So that, so now they're Palestinian. The dishes that are made the most in my books are the ones that are non-Palestinian, let's say, because they're different. And people who are Palestinian are like, oh, this sounds really nice. And people who are not Palestinian are like, this seems really interesting. I've never had it before. And I know it's not because I've already caveated saying it's not Palestinian. Da, 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 da. But, and, and they're the most cooked recipes. So, you know, I'm really happy with it. I never feel, I would never have put anything in if I didn't think it would not be delicious. I think that's the main thing. I want people to enjoy what they're doing before they think where the history came from. And as for the meat spices, <laughs> When I uh, presented the book to my publisher, she she messaged me and she then she called me. I love her. She's amazing. Her name is Jackie Small. And it's like, uh, Judy, there's no pork or beef or anything except for lamb and here and some chicken. I said, yes. She goes, and everything is with cinnamon and nutmeg uh, and black pepper and salt. And I said to her, uh-huh. And she's like, no. Uh, I was like, but that's the recipe. And she's like, but every single one. I said, yeah, but this one is with tamarind and tomato. This one is with laban or yogurt. And this one is with uh, some spicy chili, razan, I don't know what. And she's like, you have to cook everything for me. And I was like, of course I'm going to cook it for you. And I cooked her every single meat dish because she was like, how can you have 15 different lamb dishes with cinnamon and nutmeg, salt and pepper, and they're going to taste different. And she ate them. And like you said, everything has its own, has a base, and then you build on it, which is the beauty of Palestinian food. And also remember, not everyone had a lot of money. They had 700 children each and literally no income except for one parent working. And so they had two spices. My spice cupboard, you saw it, I have 500. My mom has everything, but she only uses nutmegs and salt and pepper. <laughs> she has everything else. But those are the four things she uses. So yeah, you have to think why the base is always the same. It's it's to make it free to cook everything you want, whenever you want, if you can. Sorry, I'm just laughing still at 700 children. <laughs> it's true. Though. I was thinking about what you said when you said that Palestinian food hasn't benefited from the same like cultural exploration. And I think that that also just has, it's sort of like a microcosm of Palestinian representation in media, right? Where like so-called Israeli food is so pervasive and so like in your face, you could get it anywhere, but Palestinian food kind of hard to come by, right? Not as often explored or showcased. And even when it is Palestinian food, Sometimes they'll like label it Mediterranean food to avoid the heat of being associated with Palestine. Because when you're associated with Palestine in the public eye, you subject yourself to harassment, doxing, death threats from people who have like an app, and, like plenty of free time. Right. I think uh, many years ago, I met a lady and she'd written a cookbook way, way before. I think I was a chef for like two minutes and she's Palestinian and she named her book. I'm not going to name her book because then she's going to know who she is, but it was not. <laughs> and I said to her, like, why would you name it this? It was another country's name. And she's like, because people wouldn't buy it. And I said to her, but you would be the first one with that, with Palestine in the title if you wrote this, this, instead of that, that. And she's like, but I want to sell my book. <clears throat> and I just left it. I was like, whatever. And other restaurants, like you said, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, Levantine, great names, not Palestinian though. And you're right, people do get, I mean, there's loads, this, uh, Reem, I think, Reem Asil in California, she gets like death threats, her restaurant got like firebombed for having a poster. It's Food vendors in Toronto, same type of thing. There, she had a like Free Palestine and uh, I Love Gaza like sign and all of a sudden she starts getting vandalized threats from the police threats from local zionist lobbies she's now in a full-blown lawsuit and stuff 
then mm-hmm. there was also that other one. I think it's Ayat in New York. They were subject to another Zionist campaign where, you know, they were tried, they were smeared just for being Palestinian. Can you imagine if it was the other way around and an Israeli restaurant got destroyed the way Palestinians did? There would be mayhem, mayhem. What's interesting is there is an Israeli restaurant or like an Israeli gelato spot that opened in Toronto and people started to boycott it because it was around the time when people were understanding that Israel's an occupation and boycotting is an effective technique. And let me tell you, the Zionists absolutely lost their minds that anybody would even consider boycotting a restaurant based on their affiliation with the occupation. They truly had a conniption. They were like, that's not, that's not even something you can do. You know, it's like, it was. It's crazy. I can name one Palestinian restaurant, two. One is a vegan place and another one's been here. It's like an establishment that's been here for a long time, but people go there and they don't because they're kind of old and, Again, not to criticize them, they're fantastic. It's just in comparison to the Israeli restaurants that have opened here that are high tech with the most beautiful marble tabletops and the brass lights coming down with these beautiful chandeliers and the waiters and their slick uniform. And then you go to the Palestinian one next door, food is better, cheaper, nicer, but it looks like you've just walked into like downtown somewhere. And the other one is like, as if you've gone into like the most high tech, amazing high spec New York place, who's going to go where? And I think this is the, this is where the problem is. It's the branding and the the, the, the appeal. It's packaging. Really. Yeah. Like and- when I'm searching out Palestinian food, I will have to like find the place, review it and be like, is this place actually Israeli? You know what I mean? And I'm, I don't want to go if it is. And sometimes I'll go to a Palestinian place. Like I'll be like, y'all are Palestinian. And they'll be like, why do you want to know? You know, like, you know, I support the cause. And they're like, they're very happy once I tell them, you know. I remember when I had my deli back in 2010, I stopped a brand that is still my favorite Palestinian brand called Zaytun. And I didn't know who the owners were at the time. I was just buying stuff to stock on my shelves, like, this and uh, my sisters were telling me back then so it's like 12 years ago you know you shouldn't have this stuff here because you're gonna people are not gonna come I said to what people she's like people I was like which kind of people she's like just people like you know I said to if you're being direct about I shouldn't have it tell me who are the people that I'm concerned about she's like you know Jewish people I said to uh, in fact, this Israeli gentleman here eats here every morning and he makes me make him shakshuka for breakfast with the spicy sausages and and he knows that these are all Palestinian things. And I said to her, I'm not cooking for Jewish people. I'm cooking for people. <laughs> if they don't want to come because I'm stocking Palestinian stuff. And she didn't agree with me until later. Because it didn't affect me and it didn't affect my sales, it didn't affect people, it didn't affect my staff. And in fact, I had a lot of Jewish people coming in. Not that I cared that they were or not. It's just you are you're just eating food. And if you have a problem with where your food comes from or the brand or whatever, don't come. And and I really stuck dug my can you hear my dog? She's going crazy. Yes. Um uh, come here. Come here. It, I mean, it sounds like somebody is slowly dying on your couch next to you, and we're just casually filming this podcast. That's what it hey, sounds like. It sounds. It sounds like you're adding, about to add some more bones to that fridge. You know, stop <laughs> <laughs> snoring, Electra. She's snoring right now, yeah, like sleeping. She- that dog is sleeping. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna have to keep it because if I uh, <laughs> is it really really loud? Yeah, it's pretty yeah, it's very loud. <laughs> okay, hold on. Wait. Can you just wake her up, maybe? If I pick her up, the other one's gonna attack her. So <clears throat> do you wanna go into the kitchen? No. No, not you. Electric. Oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, yo we got it this has got to be on the patreon this is yeah so you know funny. what's funny 
Philo snores like a shit ton. Everybody knows Frenchies snore. That's like their thing. They snore a lot. Um, but that's not even a snore. <laughs> that dog has sleep apnea. That's like, it's like a groan, you know, it's, it's that dog. That dog needs a CPAP breathing machine. <laughs> Don't even understand what I go through. Listen, she wouldn't go into the kitchen. She's gone like, can you hear that? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that, like we can, uh, yeah, we can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now she's gone back to where she was before. Because I can't move. My house is small. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Oh my god! I've never laughed this hard on the podcast. <laughs> this is so funny. Oh my gosh! Look at me like this. <laughs> She's staring at me with her arms like this. Paris is the same. There are two Palestinian restaurants that I know of within Paris. One was opened by a French Palestinian. The other was opened by a Palestinian who is a dear friend of mine, grew up in Dubai, uh, Rubahuri. And Ruba's restaurant isn't marketed as being Palestinian, but it is all Palestinian food or Palestinian inspired food. And she works a lot with local ingredients here. And so she's taking, you know, whatever is seasonal and then putting the Palestinian spices on it and doing like Palestinian inspired dishes and some traditional ones. The other one I haven't yet been to, but it seems to be more traditional. But there's literally an Israeli restaurant on every street. And sometimes they'll use names where you're not really sure. You know, they'll, they'll, uh, for example, they, they can give it a name where it's just like the city from Palestine. Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, Haifa Cafe. Like, what is that? Is that, is that a Palestinian in there or is that a Zionist? You know, and everybody knows that the most famous thing about the Marais in Paris is falafel. And the falafel mm -hmm. at those restaurants is delicious. It's exactly how we make it. But they're Israelis. Yeah, but Le Marais is very famous for, for being a very Jewish-Israeli neighborhood. Yes, and those <laughs> restaurants that serve like the city's best falafel are Israeli, and they're, I've seen Israeli flags in those restaurants. So what do you do with all of that? They're, they're going hard on the PR. They're going hard on the branding. They're going hard on you know, the, the creation of this image to sell something that isn't theirs, that belongs to somebody else, that we didn't have to do any of that stuff for because it's, it is ours. I mean, we've, we've been eating it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So we don't need to brand it and own it. It just is ours because we've been there longer. We didn't get there yesterday like they did. So we don't need, you know, it's like when someone tries really hard to make their point, it's sort of showing you that the whole premise is flawed. They're trying too hard, essentially. But this, it's the same, it's the same thing. And, and, I, and I suspect that it's the same thing across major cities in Europe and across the US where, where you just see this booming Israeli cuisine and the Palestinian spots are much fewer and far between. And, it's, and there's no shortage of talented Palestinian chefs. It's just sometimes we even focus on the Israeli so-called Israeli cuisine. There's like this, the, you know, it, it gets blown up as this thing, even when they may not necessarily be doing anything better or different than us. I heard a Zionist say that he was actually indigenous to hummus. I was like, <laughs> okay, that's, you're taking it a little far. Yeah. Don't get us started on hummus. That's a whole drama. I was like, you can't even say it right. My guy. That's, that's the number one thing we have to be. We have to be sure of. I think I if think they say it hummus just ran the other way. It's not indigenous. Cop. That's a cop. <laughs> yes. It's 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 a tragic story. It really is. And you know, I, I've said this before in other interviews. I'll say it again only because I think it's really important to stress this, is that a lot of people 
who don't know or don't know enough about things or have not interacted with enough people from your background, Michael, my background, Lara's, other people, the food, right? I'm, I talk about it because I know it the most. I don't deny that people in Palestine, Jewish people included, have eaten this food and ate this food and will continue to eat this food because they did, because they lived together in peace-ish in some places and some places not so much, but they did. And this was their cuisine as a country. And then the, what became the issue was that it was relabeled, renamed, changed, deleting like a total whole history of a community of people. And, and that, that's where the issue is. You know, a lot of people say, yeah, but my family have been there since and we're Israeli. Yeah, that's no problem. But is it Israeli food? No, it's not. It's Palestinian food that Jewish people ate with Palestinian Muslims and Christians and Jews all alike. And then the problem has become that it's become Israeli and deleted the historical background of this. Uh, and, and this is, this is the, the point, is that we have to acknowledge that this food has been eaten by all, but the eradication of most to give it to a small number is, is the problem. I'm, I'm lucky, I'm unlucky. I'm unlucky I've never been and cannot go and haven't seen, but I'm lucky that I've been here to, to be able to have the opportunity to speak and say and not have suffered like a lot of people have in that way because it's such an important story to say whether you're there or here or, you know, whether you're Palestinian or not. So I'm getting a little bit emotional because I just, I feel that, there's so much anger and fighting that people forget that there's actually human beings and families. And, you know, my dad is in his mid seventies and I see him crying um, <clears throat> and he never said why, and he's never going to see home really. I mean, he's never going to see home again. And the last time he saw it was, he couldn't even remember it. And he's going to die knowing that he's never gone home again. And people don't get that because no one has, well, I don't know anyone that hasn't got the right to return to their country. I mean, apart from Palestinians, I'm sure there are other countries. I'm not as educated in the politics of the whole world and who can and cannot go back. But can you imagine that feeling being in your winter of your life, knowing that you're going to die and never go and step foot back into the place that is where you were born and your home? And you can't be buried there. And if that's what you want, it's it's kind of melancholy uh, sadness, but it's the reality for hundreds of thousands of people. And this trauma that they bring into their families and pass on, and it, it's real. You know, we make loads of jokes about parents and families and stuff, but it comes, you know, there's ingest, there's always some kind of dark truth behind it. And this is where all this stuff comes from. And I want it to be different that in a world where we can go because we feel like it. it's an important thing. Sorry, I went off on a tangent and I can go. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia, I want to emphasize something. We had somebody like Hadar Cohen on our show. She's a Jewish Israeli. So she has the Israeli nationality, but her family's been in Palestine for over 10 generations. So they have been in Palestine for longer than Zionism has been in Palestine for longer than the state of Israel has been in Palestine. And her ancestors remember a different way of dealing and living and existing in the land with the Palestinian Muslim and Christian counterparts. Right. And she identifies as a Palestinian Jew because her family and ancestors have always identified as Palestinian because that's what the, the name of the land was. And so surely somebody like Hadar and, and a family like Hadar's has been eating the food that we've been eating and that is Palestinian. The issue then is not about somebody like her or someone you know who, who has roots in Palestine, truly roots in Palestine, regardless of what religion they are, but who has roots in Palestine. Her family would also be the first to tell you this dish is Palestinian. People have been eating it for generations before Israel was even conceived in the Zionist Congress. Yes. So that's not the issue. The issue is rather people coming from different countries as settlers with, 
as, as a part of this Zionist ideology and to realize this Zionist project, which means they settle in the land, we are expelled from the land, and they take everything that is ours and they call it theirs. So if you have European origin, if you're Romanian, if you're Bulgarian, if you're Polish and you're Jewish and you show up to occupied Palestine to live in a settlement that's illegal, that's on stolen Palestinian land, and you say, I'm eating Israeli food as you eat your mensef, your non-kosher mensef, you know, that's the issue, is the rebranding of Palestinian food as Israeli food by people who are participating in the settler colonial project, who are coming from places all over the world that has nothing to do with Palestine. We obviously have no issue with Palestinian Jews who have been on the land and who have eaten this food and claim this food as a part of their Palestinian Jewish identity. That's not the problem. The problem is the people who are coming from the US, the people who are coming from Eastern Europe, the people who are coming from countries all around the world and who are integrating into this so-called Israeli identity, which is an invented identity. It's created. And it's created on the back of an already existing identity, the Palestinian one. They didn't have to do anything. They were like, oh, okay, well, this they, these people have a culture. All right, we'll just take theirs. We'll just, you know, copy paste, you know, change the labeling and uh, boom, you know, we have, we have Israeli culture. We have Israeli songs. You know, it's like, it's like Amir's, Amir Zahar's video. Uh, yes. That's exactly what it is. It's complete cultural appropriation of food, of music, of media, all of those things. They just took it, slapped the Israeli label on it. And to your point about the people who have been there for generations, let's break it down. At its height, 8% of the population was Jewish, right? That's at its height. So that means that the majority of people who are coming now, who are immigrating now, settling now, are not those 8%, right? They're not the people who have been there for generations eating the food. They are new people coming in from Eastern Europe, from other places saying, this Palestinian food is mine now. And it's not even Palestinian food, right? It's Israeli food. It's all an invention. And it's really frustrating because you have to keep saying the same things over and over again, a lot. Is it intertwining or interconnection that people want to keep having with the two is so dangerous. When my book came out, my publisher did an event for, for all the press and for all the press, like all of them. They loved the food. It was free. It was delicious. They had all these full spread Palestinian style my publisher was very excited because it was like her first book on Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. And she didn't know which way this was going to go. And by the end of it, it was a disaster. It was a disaster because every single one from the Times to the Guardian to the Independent to the God knows what were telling us, telling me that they're not going to write about me. They're not going to write about the book. We need these people because if you don't get written about, people don't know about the book. The book gets buried and then it just dies. Why? Why? Oh, well, how can we write about you and Palestine? Not me. I don't care about me. I'm, I'm not like a massive uh, person on social media as a person. That makes sense. I don't like my face on stuff. Why? And they're like, um, um, I know you're going to um-um, but this um needs to stay. Um, they're just like, um, you know, how do we write about you without writing about them. Why? Did you write about us when you wrote about them? And they're just looking at me like, what? Like when that Israeli cookbook came out, did you write about Palestinian people? No. So why do you need to write about Israelis when you're writing about me or my book? Um... It's not my um, it's her um. And it happened. Um, 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 the whole table. And I left really defeated, thinking lots of words I cannot repeat on your podcast. But I just thought, what's the point? What is the point? You've got all these educated people who know what's going on 
And they want to keep intertwining us with them, but not them with us. We don't get legitimized unless they have legitimized us, but they don't need us to legitimize them. And I told them. But in reality, it's the opposite because they stole our stuff. Exactly. And and what's the rule? I mean, the premise is faulty. What is the rule, right? I mean, why do you have to write about the colonizer when you're speaking about the colonized, can you imagine if if somebody required a Native American to every single time that they spoke about themselves to speak about the settlers on their land, and anytime they they tried to express their own culture or identity, that they have to tie it to how it relates to the colonizer? I mean, that's insane. This is exactly the point. When I left, I just thought, how crazy was this dinner and what was being said and I couldn't even speak I because I wanted to just shake people like are you crazy this is exactly what they want is that you keep doing what you're doing and I was so angry I was so angry but I had to smile and pretend everything was fine and 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 do all the stuff by myself with this phone pushing things on my own and you get a random person who's randomly joined a newspaper who likes a picture and she's like oh can I write about you and it's like yes what do you know about Palestine not much amazing I I don't even go into the details because the more she knows the less she's going to publish and she you know she became two or three people and over the last six years but it's so frustrating it's so frustrating I won't give up on on talking about things. I'm not going to stop doing things to keep promoting and talking. I have three sisters and we talk a lot about things and I speak to them a lot about things like this because I get worried to talk about other people because people say things and stories get twisted and turned and changed. And with sisters, it's different. And I was telling them, expressing to them like this. And I said to them, I, I uh, I sound bitter. I sound angry uh, and they're like no you're not you're, you you it's a justified feeling to know that somebody who could have potentially helped promote or or again Michael you don't know me but it's it's not about me I don't care about Judy Kalla and the story of this I think the story of Palestine and 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 knowledge you know knowledge and educating people is so much more important and you know food is is a really interesting thing because people love it it tastes great and it connects a lot of people not just Palestinians felt very very bitter but rightfully so because in 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 the UK you can have 10 white guys called Tony making macaroni and cheese and every week they'll be in some kind of magazine and it's the same recipe just one puts nutmeg the other one puts peppercorns one puts star anise but it's like oh new mashed potato recipe and they all look the same oh you saw my new uh, my new spread <laughs> and then you have me and then you have another wonderful writer called Yasmin Khan and Sami Tamimi and so on. And they'll spread it over like years. Like, oh, we already wrote about Palestine eight months ago. Yeah, but that was Yasmin Khan. That's another person. Oh, we can't put Judy in because we've got Sami in six months. So you can't put three Middle Eastern Iranian Palestinians in a newspaper over 18 months. No, but you can put 16 times Tony's, different Tony's, blonde and making six different kinds of mashed potato every week. And this really irked me. It got me thinking, it's just silencing, uh, just the way that they're picking and choosing people. Oh, we had someone who looks like her already. Oh, we already had someone like that. What do you mean? I am the only version of me. Lara is no one. No one's going to be like Lara. You're the only Michael there is. These kind of things. I'm losing my breath because I'm so angry. And I, I never really speak about it because it sounds out of a bitterness or jealousy. And it's so not from there. It's silencing and picking and choosing what you want instead of what's actually happening I hate it because in fact none of these chefs who we were all friends with each other are friends with each other anymore 
not because we have personal issues with each other, but because publishers, newspapers pitted us against each other and we don't speak anymore. If you ask me why, I have no idea. People who used to text message and contact, and it's, it, it's such a bigger story than just, did you write about Judy's book or Yasmin's book or Sammy's book or Sabrina's book or Lara's book or Michael's book? It's, it's like a ripple effect. It's horrible when there's so much to celebrate. You know how long it takes to write a book? Guess. Years? I would say two yeah. years. Yeah, from start to finish, about 18 months, a year to 18 months. It's like a blood, sweat and tears, pleasure. I mean, my God, you're every letter that's gone in there, every photo, every, every recipe, uh, not just as cookbooks, any book, writing, novels. There's so much going on in the background that people don't see that takes away from all that joy and, and excitement because, I mean, you see how they, we're nobody in the big picture of life, you know, but we are, I'm somebody to myself. I mean, I'm the most important person in my life as you should be in yours and Lara and hers, you know, we're our main character. What happens with all these people pitting each other against each other is dangerous. It doesn't make sense because all that effort and that pleasure and the joy and the knowledge and the interesting stuff that comes with it and stories it's interesting that you describe the divide and conquer tactic being used even amongst Palestinian chefs in exile, right? Like this competition for resources, which is pretty much artificial because, you know, like it's being made up by the publisher or the occupation or whoever. Then another thing that I was, I just wanted to say I was doing research for this podcast you know, looking through your Instagram and just Google search and stuff. And I just want to shout you out and show respect for how you have so confidently and so eloquently represented Palestine and always used the word Palestine, right? At a time when people are shying away from being Palestinian, trying to hide it or just be like smart about who they tell it to, not you, you always stood proudly in the name Palestine. And that's at a time when Palestinians are being kicked out violently of all types of spaces, whether they're in Palestine or in exile. And so I just wanted to show you some respect because that's, you know, it's huge. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Honestly, I was about to start crying. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think, I think it's important. I think if you don't stand for something, who are you? <laughs> yeah, I always like to get our guests uh, at the verge of tears, not real, never <laughs> tears themselves, but, but just almost there. That's what I like. It's important. Our grandparents and their parents and our parents might not be here long, but most of our grandparents are not here. And, you know, I think in a romantic sense, you know, we are the voices for them. In, in, in the way we can be. For non-Palestinians, somebody has no experience with our cuisine. What do you recommend that they cook as their first dish? Michael, listen up closely. This is pertinent for you. <laughs> if they've never had our food, yeah. straight in for the kill, like probably matlube, I think is the one I would make them do. It takes a little bit of time, but it's, worth it yeah a little bit because it has a bit of everything in it you have rice you have vegetables you have meat you have the cinnamon and the nutmeg and it's just spices and it's very good it's very good i think and it's also an accomplishment right when you've made it and you flipped it and it sits and it's perfect i did a dinner not long ago for a friend of mine who's from san francisco he's from Gaza. And he asked me to make a Palestinian dinner for him and his friends for his birthday. And I was just like, oh my God, what am I going to make? And I made Malube, like half his style, Ghazan style, half my style. And I was like, this is going to taste like crap because I've never made it this way with cauliflower and carrots and I don't know what. And it turned out great. And everybody loved it, it was with other things, obviously, as well. But yeah, I think Malube definitely, it's, it's a showstopper. It's... Yeah, you feel like you've done something to be proud of. <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. 
yeah. there's a woman on TikTok who can flip the Macluba without her hands, basically. Like she flips it, the thing, and the the it turns over and lands on the tray. It's elite level Palestinian. You have to send that. Yeah. You have to send that to me to see that. That's mad. <laughs> yeah, she can, she can do like two of them on one tray. She's insane. Oh my God. We need to see this, Lara. <laughs> what is Anyways, she Anyways, you're talking about... Wait, she's not using her hands? What is she using? No, she's like, she's creating force with the tray and like a central or like a circular motion, you know, just enough for the thing to flip over. Because usually you'd put the tray on top, you know what I mean? Then you yeah. flip it over. But she is like, no, no, no. Like it starts up the way, the, like right side up, basically on the tray. She yeah. flips the pot in uh-huh. midair, you know what I'm saying? And then catches it on the tray. Oh, I was like, I was like, hey, that's Palestinian resistance right there. My mind is blown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Anyways, you're talking about you're talking about uh, <laughs> like best best dish for a first timer. And I was thinking about making makluba, but I was gonna do like a fusion, sort of like a lasagna makluba. No, I'm just kidding. It's a little a little joke. It's a little, <laughs> little joke. fusion it was, joke. It was a little, it was a little joke. Yeah, <laughs> I can see how angry you got immediately. I just had to let you know I was kidding. <laughs> I was so worried. This eye nearly popped up. I saw a stress twitch in your face, and I was like, I should let her know I'm joking. Oh, I don't know where it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna send you my books so you can cook from them. I'll buy your books. You don't gotta send it to me. Thank you. If you buy my books, they 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 donate money to to charity. There's a charity in Nablus called the House of Friendship. It's a children's charity. So far, we renovated the building that the children attend, and it gives them pencil cases and backpacks with books and all the things they need. But the majority of the money went to rebuild the school. So that's what a really nice thing that comes out of both of the books. In that case, you could send me a copy. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> no, I look forward. I I look forward to buying it then. <laughs> Judy, can we buy them directly from your website? No, it doesn't matter where you buy them from. Just the fact that they're bought, the money goes straight uh, because Amazon buys them from the publisher, and when they get bought from Amazon, it deducts from him like that. This has been sold and what have you. So okay. It's- matter where they're bought from or not even amazon any any place awesome and last question maybe you were doing a lot of zoom classes during confinement and during the pandemic teaching people all over the world to cook palestinian and some non-palestinian cuisine are you going to be doing more of those no i'm not going to be doing any at the moment i'm just taking a little bit of a time out for myself which I have majority of this year regarding cooking classes online. I really loved it. I really loved it. I didn't even know I could do it. I didn't know it was a possibility. I didn't know anyone would show up, but the whole world was in a lockdown at the same time. And we were, I was alone as were a lot of people. And yeah, I mean, we spoke a lot. <laughs> it was difficult. It was difficult. And I needed it more for me than for anybody else it was my company and my fun and my sadness at the same time hearing people's stories and it was really emotional and I met the most amazing people as did you you were in most of the classes it was in so many of them it was so much fun community you know from Australia to the, to the Middle East to you in Paris to, to the States I love it and I will I will I will do them just today no I just need a little bit of time to get myself together I, I thought it was an amazing thing that I never ever thought I would do I hate teaching because I don't think I'm good at it I think I'm impatient but I realize that I'm not <laughs> Um, because I never taught before. I mean, in my head, I thought that it was something that I would be bad at. But yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And it really, and not, not to sound dramatic or a bit extra, but it really saved me from having a nervous breakdown in the middle of lockdown and isolated, isolated from people for over a year by myself with the odd interaction here and there uh, with my sister or my mom, but from a distance. It, it, it's really what kind of got me through. 
they will come back, just not today. I need a, I need to have a moment for myself. I'm just absorbing all the stories people shared with me, and it was, it was amazing. They were some of the best memories I had of confinement, and so I'm really looking forward to taking more classes in the future. I'm so glad that like Zoom provided you with a positive outlet during quarantine because I was stuck doing comedy on Zoom and that's when I was about to kill myself the most honestly. I was like it's it should happen. <laughs> every time every time a joke didn't land, I was like it must have been the Wi-Fi because I've never written a bad joke. You know what I mean? Not in my lifetime. I have seen comedy audiences not appreciate good humor and that's on them. But I attended one of Michael's Zoom comedy hours. Wow. And Tough we times. laughed. We laughed. Yeah, you had a good time, but you were also one of like three audience members there. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what? We don't know who's in there. Like, we don't care who's in the room. We're just in our house anyway. Like, we don't care uh, if it's just... like a hundred people online. So happy to be back in live performance in person. It's so much better. Oh, it's not about the quantity. It's the quality. Honestly, I realize this a lot. Hey, and that's what I say to women all the time. <laughs> You're my dear, dear, dear friend and my sister. And thank you so much for being here. We had so much fun. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was so nice to be on here. I think we spoke about everything and nothing and a bit extra so <laughs> that's exactly the point folks that has been another episode of the palestine pod thank you all so much for listening go ahead and follow us on instagram at the palestine pod check out our website with our sources at www.palestinepod.com send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Palestine pod. Not me one taking that. Let's go. Yes. Folks, that has been another episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Hi, Michael. Hello. Sorry about the Hello, late nice. start. No, Sorry, no Mark. worries. I was I was late. So you were late. <laughs> it's a little yeah, early actually, for you. <laughs> worked perfectly for every party. You're uh, what is, is it? Ten a.m. Yeah, Are go you ahead. doing your nails right now, girl? <laughs> My nail. You know me anyway, so you can. No, I know, I but I, <laughs> I know, I know you. <laughs> I just have to read like a two sentence bio to tell the people who you are when we get started. Did you think she was using her bio, the bio to like remind herself who you are? <laughs> you know, can I stop? I'm hearing a lot of like road noises. Is that coming yeah, from there's you? There's a train that runs behind my house. Let me see if okay. I can. Let me see if I can shut another door. I didn't hear the road noises. I can hear the cat dog though. I don't know, man. That literally Look. runs past my kitchen. Yeah. Sounded like Mad Max. <laughs> no. Is that your cat? No, it's my dog. She's going to be there the whole time. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Why did I say cat? You don't have a cat. I was like, no, that's your dog. Maybe because she sounded like a cat. Yeah, yeah that was the most cat sounding dog I've ever heard. He's the most cat behaving dog you'll ever meet. <laughs> And I used to watch the show Cat Dog, you know? <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a 90s reference. Some people will get it. It's also American. Yeah. yeah. My girlfriend off in the corner just said, I got it, baby. <laughs> we love we love a supportive partner. Laura, hold on. I'm going to just uh, switch my Wi-Fi because uh, it's uh, saying I have an unstable connection. I think so. My computer says that I have an unstable connection all the time. And I'm like, yeah, to life, Poppy, stop testing me. You know what I mean? 